0: This is Commerce Shenanigans, episode 480, A Conversation with Alex Saviak. Welcome to the Commerce Shenanigans podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 480, A Conversation with Alex Saviak. This is actually part one of this conversation. I'm going to tag it as such in the episode. Uh, Originally, it was meant to be uh, a full episode. Um, It's still an hour and a half, so don't feel like you're getting uh, shifted here um, or short shrift. You are getting a full hour and a half conversation. It just happens to be only up until the mid-80s. We had a great conversation, Alex and I, back on March 17th. Um, we meant to be able to record the second part and then stitch it all together into one big episode. Unfortunately, it just didn't work out that way with scheduling, but it's a great episode. Um, also unusual, uh, I open. you'll hear actually the ringing of the phone as I'm actually calling Alex. He was in Toronto, where I live, um, but he was in for, town for a con, so we actually just spoke on the phone. Um, unfortunately, we weren't able to do a face-to-face meeting. Um, he was getting ready for a con and working on commissions, and I was had uh, other things going on that I was unable to to uh, get down to where he was as well, but we were able to uh, have a great conversation and we wanted to get part two done before we put up the episode, just didn't work out that way, so we're going to at some point have a second conversation, because it kind of leaves us, uh, he's in Jim Shooter's office, and that's where we end. Um, but uh, this was a lot of fun uh, I think I asked one question And it led into an hour and a half conversation So it was really great Alex was fantastic to have on I'm very excited to have him back on the show You can email me at at shenanigans At gmail.com Like the show on Facebook Read and review us on iTunes Subscribe to us on iTunes And also listen to us on Stitcher Hello Oh hi Alex Who's this? This is uh, Adam Chapman calling from the Comic Shenanigans podcast.
1: Oh, no, I'm sorry. This is Jim Lee. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. How you doing, Adam?
0: I'm good. How are you? Uh,
1: not too bad. Got a night's sleep. Just uh, working on some pre-commissions pre-con commissions here and um, doing okay.
0: That's good. So you had a good flight into Toronto?
1: Oh, yeah, the flights were excellent. Uh, The worst part of it was, well,
0: I don't know, are you a resident here or you just uh, come back, go back and forth? No, I'm I'm born and raised.
1: Oh, okay. Well, you know, going back and forth, I guess maybe if you've done that more than a number of times, and for me it's the first time, going through customs, that was a huge ordeal. (laughs) I mean, having to face those serpentine lines, going through that whole thing, uh, you know, trying to go through those those screens popping in that, that form they had me fill out on the plane, and the darn thing wouldn't scan. Then I had to wait for somebody to come over to tell me, well, just take it up to the window, then you go up to the window, and now you go through this big serpentine line thing again by the time you get there. And to make matters worse, it was un, just, for me anyway, just unbearably hot inside the airport. I mean, it felt like it was, they had the thermostats at about 85 degrees. So um, that was the worst part of it The flights were great
0: (laughs) Fair enough Well, no one likes customs, right?
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, I did customs A couple of times I mean, I went to Australia once I went to Europe Uh, It just seemed like it moved a little bit faster
2: Mm. And
1: again Maybe I would have been more patient If I just didn't feel so hot And I didn't even have a jacket on And, uh, you know, when I'm just kind of you know, walking around inside of an establishment and I've just got a shirt and a pair of trousers on and I feel like I'm starting to perspire. That just bothers me. So I just, and, and I was tired. And so I was, you know, I didn't have the same amount of patience that I normally do. So all those things, you know, made for just one um let's say ordeal that I would normally just more or less take in stride if I would have been, you know, well rested and if it was just more comfortable, whatever. But other than that, I mean I shouldn't complain even though I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only gonna have to go through it again probably on Sunday night when I'm leaving. But uh well that's part that's you know part of the uh, part of the trip I guess.
0: So uh an unfortunate part, but yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, they're just asking you questions and, you know, it's not like they're, you know, singling you out and, uh, you know, doing a strip search and looking through every piece of luggage and doing a all that would have been horrible mm. just for the sake of what it is. I mean, sometimes even in America, when I go through the, uh, you know, the scanner and just randomly they go, OK, can you stand here, please? And I'm thinking, okay, what did I do? I, do I, I don't I do have anything in my palms. You know, <laughs> arms out, they do the thing, and they say, well, something, I said, well, something popped up, and I said, well, I did have a right hip replacement uh, about eight years ago. Oh, okay, that must be it. So now, nine times out of ten, that doesn't happen to me, but sometimes something, some scanners must be. You think they were the same throughout the United States, but Mm. I guess some are a little more sensitive than others.
0: No, I guess not. Yeah, it's funny. um... No,
1: I mean, it hasn't been. It hasn't been. You know, aggressively bad. Where you know some people have some horrible ordeals about you know being singled out and uh, you know being searched and all this kind of stuff, and they feel like they're going through some sort of interrogation process. And maybe in some third world countries, you know, that don't necessarily favor. Americans And I'm not saying that Americans, as much as, you know, our country tries to make everybody feel very welcome and comfortable. I mean, as far as foreign policy goes, some countries just don't like, you know, what uh, America represents and stands for. So, um, you know, when it comes to Americans, well, we have it in, in the United States also. You have, you know, between the North and the South. I mean, when I was moving down from New York down to Florida, where I live now, if you're... Stopping in a southern state like Alabama or, or, you know, maybe even a little bit further south in Georgia where they don't necessarily like northerners. I mean, you have to watch your speed limits as you're driving because if you go a little bit over, they'll single you out if you still have, you know, northern license plates on. And they will not hesitate to pull you over and give you that ticket because they'll say, hey, you know, I don't care if there's nobody on the road. Speed limit's 70. You were doing 72 wow wow (laughs) yeah Uh, they can get a little bit uh, you know people are funny all over the world so what are you going to do
0: when you, when you mentioned about customs before, it made me remember that uh, every time I crossed the U.S.-Canadian border with my wife, no matter what, we're, we're, usually we're just going to like a, a, a baseball game somewhere because we're big baseball fans and we we're trying to go to every stadium eventually, and every time without fail, she always gets anxious at the border. I'm like, why? You have nothing to hide. You've legitimately done nothing wrong. She's like, I'm just nervous. He's going to ask me questions and I'm going to get all all flummoxed. And I'm like, but why? Like, You're just going to a baseball game. And, but sometimes they'll ask you, like, what game, what was the score, what happened to this? And she's like, I, I don't remember.
1: <laughs> wow. Yeah, that gets, well, that, that, that gets a little bit crazy when you're just thinking in terms of baseball game. I mean, for myself, I mean, I'm at a convention, and even though I wrote, you know, I checked off the, the box for business, and it says, you know, do you have any commercial goods, samples, equipment, whatever. I checked that off also, and the guy asked me, he goes, Ah, uh, you're here for business. What are you doing? I said well, I'm a guest speaker at the Toronto Fan Expo Comic Con. Oh, okay. And what kind of uh, commercial stuff do you have? I said, well, it says samples. I said I'm displaying my artwork, you know, because it's my first time here. He says, oh, okay. He just kind of checked it off. He goes on, oh, you've got, you've got some foods here that you're taking. And I said, well, I'm type two diabetic, so I've got, I got to have some fruits. I got apples and oranges just because I. Have to take those blood sugar snacks. He Goes, oh yeah, I can understand that. So he just kind of checked a few things off and uh, put some numbers on the back, and he says, "Okay, just take that to the exit."
2: Huh.
1: And that was it. I mean, no, no big deal uh, as far as that goes, you know. So, um, so I mean, in, in that sense, uh, uh, you know, I, I it was fine, but it was fine for me. I, I didn't really give him much thought. <laughs> so anyway. But yeah, and I mean, I obviously, uh, yeah, if they're going to start getting a little bit, uh, well, if your wife is worried about those things where they might ask you the score and uh, who got the game-winning hit, you just have to make sure you record all that while you're there and say, listen, here, hold this piece of paper with you and just look back."
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, because you know? like, they've actually asked those questions, so that's, that's why she gets worried every time now. Like, we have to remember the exact details. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, I mean, at each inning, uh, you know, did any did anybody get caught stealing? Did anybody slide and break a leg? Uh, I mean, <laughs> wow. So how many states have you actually been to?
0: Uh, I've been, um, let's see, I'm trying to think. I've been to eight stadiums that weren't the Sky Dome, and my wife has been to four. Um, and this year we're doing the California trip, so we're doing uh Dodger Stadium, Angel Stadium and um uh Petco Park in San Diego.
1: Wow, so well, that being said, you have well, I don't know. Well, that, I, I guess I can't say that you still have a long way to go. Maybe you do. I mean, I follow baseball too and obviously you know that you know that you know not every I don't think every state has a no, every state doesn't have a baseball team otherwise we have 52 teams. I know. Um so that makes your that makes your task a little bit easier,
0: <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> or a lot
1: easier because <laughs> if you know if you had a, if there were two teams in Hawaii, if you had one representative of every of both leagues, uh, you know uh, American, uh, you know whatever National League, etc., American League, and that means you could have 104 teams. Can you imagine that 104 different stadiums? I mean, that'd know, be crazy. insane. <laughs> It would be incredibly insane. So you know, depending upon what part of the country I go to, sometimes I'm I'm in a particular state, and I go. So what teams do you guys follow? Because they could be somewhere in the Midwest, and they'll say, Well, you know, we might follow St. Louis Cardinals, but you know, that's three states down south. Mm. That's the closest team to them. You know, that kind of a thing. Well, you know, so uh, uh, you know, and uh, well, I mean, I was born in. Um, born and raised in New York until I was a uh, teenager. Um, So, I mean, I still have an affiliate. Well, I was a Yankees fan growing up, and then the Mets, I was only, I was 10 when the Mets came into fruition, and God, they were just such a awful team. Nobody wanted to root for the Mets, so I mean, uh, (laughs) it wasn't, and then, oddly enough, seven years later, they win the World Series, but that still didn't convince me to give up the Yankees. And, um... (laughs) Then it wasn't until I think when George Steinbrenner bought the Yankees and he started, you know, pulling all kinds of weird stuff and where, you know, I think some players wanted to leave or some players, you know, like he got rid of uh, Greg Nettles and he got rid of Goose Gossage and, you know, he was just doing all kinds of weird stuff. And when, when Nettles left, I said, when Nettles left I said forget it um, I, I'm not following the Yankees anymore mm. and so actually I didn't even follow baseball for a couple of years and when I would look back at the Yankees they really had some lean years and I'm thinking ah yeah the good years of the Yankees they're all gone the late 70s <laughs> you know I was a, you know I was a Yankee fan when Guidry was pitched his 25 and three year and just striking everybody out with that nasty slider of his you know and um, shortly after that I couple of years after that I guess I stopped being a Yankees fan or just a baseball fan in general but then when um I had gotten married and I was living in an, uh, a basically a mother-daughter house where upstairs my wife and I rented the apartment and uh, downstairs the son was well I was 25 the son was 14 and he was a Mets fan and at the time um I guess in the early 80s Uh, George Bamberger became the manager of the Mets, and they got players like Darryl Strawberry, and then they got Dwight Gooden, and all of a sudden the Mets were looking like a really good team. And, uh, you know, they were contending, and uh, eventually, uh, you know, they won the World Series in 86 and got uh, to the playoffs again in 88, and so I became a Mets fan, so did my son, and to this day... Even in Florida, my son is a huge Mets fan, and obviously I follow the team. I follow the Yankees too, but more so the Mets. Um, and uh, we even got—we finally, in the last couple of years, I guess—we got the Major League Baseball package just for the Mets
0: mm. alone. Yeah.
1: Uh, because you know, being in Florida, I mean, you get—you uh, just limited to some ESPN games. As, well, if they're winning. If they're in contention, you'll get more ESPN games than not. But if they're, you know, just sort of middle of the road, you know, you might get to see about, you know, 10 games a year on television, and that's about it. But with the MLB package, uh, every night, uh, you know, we can sit down, watch the game. I usually can't. I'm working, so I usually don't get to sit and watch the game because it's only on one television. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm in my studio, and I don't have it there. But uh, usually by the seventh inning. Um, I try to sit down, especially last year when we were getting down into the nitty gritty and it seems like whenever I would sit on the rocking on the recliner in the living room around the seventh inning, if they were losing they'd come back and win. So <laughs> now if my son when my son's home and I'll be working, all of a sudden he'll yell, Dad, it's the seventh inning, you gotta get in here. <laughs> <laughs> uh so especially if it's close. Or, you know, if it's a one nothing game and, you know, not in the Mets favor or even if it's one nothing in the Mets favor, you know, if I'm not there they might lose that game. You know, there's always that uh Uh, well, well, let's, are you a, what, Toronto
0: Blue Jays fan? I'm a pretty big Blue Jays fan. It's interesting. Last year, I had a relationship with the Jays, which is kind of opposite to yours in the Mets, in that, um, I had season tickets. I went to, you know, not a lot of games, maybe only 20, and I sold a lot of my other tickets, but it felt like most of the time when I went, they would lose. Uh, I think all year, I saw maybe five wins and like 15 losses. Um, it was, it was horrible. (laughs) Everyone told, I me told me to, to knock
1: a Friend, that it seems odd that when he comes over, um, my son would lament. When he would come over because it seems like three or four games in a row he'd pop up when the Mets were on, and even if they were winning, they'd lose that game. So you know, some nights I'd say, "So Dan, is Mark coming over?" He goes, "Not. Nah, the Mets are on tonight." <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, when the Jays made it to the postseason, my wife was like, "You can't go to the game." I'm like, "No, I'm going." She's like, "If you go, they're going to lose." <laughs> Did they? Uh, thankfully, no. Actually, I went to a couple games in the postseason last year. I went to the the wild card game, which we won in extra innings, and that was one of the craziest games I've ever been at. It was so tense, and uh, but thankfully, oh, yeah. I would yeah, never have heard. Some, they had some
1: excellent playoff games last year, and uh, even the Mets. I mean, they ended up in a one game, one game wild card thing, and uh, you know they just got pfft. the pitching. The pitching is that shot, which, what shines in those playoff games. I mean, uh, you, they just. You know, some of the managers they overuse. I forget what, what team was it? Um, they overuse their relief staff. Where this guy who throws the ball 102 miles an hour. I forget what team it was. Now it was a not a not a Caucasian player, but a pitcher, and uh, he'd come in every day, even when they didn't need him to come in, like that extra inning. You know, these five balls, they're good for one inning in the night, mm. and they would bring him in, and they they bring bring him in the eighth. And so now he's throwing twice as many pitches. And then he wanted to pitch again the next day. And then the day after, and they're going, wow, they're going to wipe this guy out. Sure enough, you know, even when it came to the World Series, I'm trying to remember now, um, the Cubs won. Yeah. So on the American League team, um, they had a really good uh, starter. Um, he, they, were had, they were having him pitch 1-4-7, and seven, or if it had to be 1-4-6, and six, whatever. And uh, he was just wiped out. You know, you could just only go so-and-so deep. They count, of course, his pitch counting. Usually 100 pitches is when they want to bring their middle reliever in. Even if the guy's not in trouble, you're going, he's doing great. Okay, so he pitched, he pitched 100 pitches in five and, you know, five and one or two-thirds of an inning. They're taking him out. What the hell for? And then the middle reliever comes in with two men on base, and he gives up a hit. And those two runs score, and you're going, jeez. I mean, and the, the the what's unfair about that whole thing is that that guy doesn't get credited for the runs. It's the starting pitcher now has two more runs against his ERA, but that middle reliever guy came in and just gave up a hit. And you're going that somehow they gotta somehow account for that. You know, I think I'm trying to remember if it was last year that I heard that now for relievers they call, they have besides saves. and wins, they also have holds. Mm -hmm. So I think if, uh, you know, if you come in and don't give up that hit, and you know, the score stays the same, and that's the end of the inning, the end of the record for the starting pitcher, that's called a hold. Because if you don't have, I mean, you can come in and then, sure, when a a reliever has wins, you're going, "Uh uh-oh, he messed it up for the starter, so they probably tied it or whatever, and uh, Somehow, the starter can pitch a fairly brilliant game, you know, one nothing going into the 6th uh, or 7th, and then end up, you know, no, no record or losing because the relief pitching is suspect. And that's just, I mean, I, and I'm sure, as you know, if you don't have a good bullpen and you don't have a good closer... You might as well hang it up because they can't expect those starters to do what they did, Mm. you know, a hundred years ago when they pitch every three days and, you know, pitch a complete game. Even if it was tied, they'd go into the 18th inning and still keep pitching and come back two days later. (laughs) You know, they just don't make them like that anymore. I don't know what's wrong with the uh, arms on these kids, but, Mm. uh, you know... Tommy John surgery is not a, you know, is not a rarity. It seems to be uh, almost like, yeah, we're going to have to have to do surgery, Tommy John surgery. Yeah. So that's a uh, matter of fact, if there's one little baseball claim to fame, uh, fame uh, let's say, and aside, my daughter went to the same college and in, in the same year that... Um, <clears throat> Uh, one of the Mets pitchers. Oh God, I'm having brain fatigue right now. Uh, one of the new Mets pitchers, the guy with the long, long brown hair.
0: Oh, who um, didn't... I can't remember his name now.
1: Uh... <laughs> yeah, but you know who I'm talking about. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, he was when she was in college. He was uh, he was on the baseball team, and she went to see a couple of games that he pitched. Oh wow. And jeez, uh, yeah. So, and as a matter of fact, my dentist and that guy's parents are good friends. <laughs> so, I guess he must have been the dentist for Either the parents, or at least, or maybe even the son. But I mean, the son was going to—he was going to the—the uh, the, the, what you call it, the college was Stetson University, and uh, that's only thirty minutes from my house. But my daughter, you know, she wanted the college experience, so she stayed on campus. And you know, if she was having a bad day, she could always come home for the weekend. Mm. Uh, but still, um, I mean, I never went to see any baseball games there. If I would have, if I would have had the foresight to know. Hey, wow, this guy's going to be pitching on the Mets. Yeah, we should go see a ball game.
2: <laughs>
1: you know, that didn't happen. And we, always, we had the, um, let's see, we have a minor league team. We used to have the Daytona Cubs double A minor league team uh, playing for us, playing in our town in Daytona Beach. And it was only $5 to go see a ball game. And it's a small stadium. And boy, you would never have a bad seat. And you get to see, you know, some of the stars, uh, the future superstars, and sometimes, uh, you know, uh, that would have excellent records. And you'd already know, well, yeah, this guy, you know, they're calling this guy up, or he's gonna going to be going into AAA or whatever. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was always fun. We always we have a lot of. Uh, you know there's a lot of baseball around where i live i mean uh you know there's a stadium in in orlando uh, uh the braves used to have a training training stuff uh, minor league system in, in orlando mm-hmm. um we've got uh you know tampa is two hours away across the state um so we can you know see the the rays if we wanted to um or if you're let's say if you're a yankees fan i mean you could Set up and go drive two hours to Tampa, and you know, for that weekend that they're playing, you could. Uh, we have friends that do that every year. Yeah. Whenever the Yankees are in town, they're big Yankees fans from New York, and uh, you know, a couple of times a year they'll go for the weekend into Tampa just to watch a couple of Yankees games. Um, my uh, friend's wife was devastated when Derek Jeter retired.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, but uh, hey, listen, you know. When you say it's funny, because how old are you, Adam?
0: Uh, 33.
1: Okay, 33. Well, you know, in some sports, if you're a football player, 33, you're getting pretty old.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, baseball, you're still kind of like in your just coming, maybe getting out of your prime years, I guess, the prime years for baseball from when you're young and get started, maybe until you're about 35. So you're kind of getting to that, to that level, you know. Uh, but... Uh, you know, Jeter was, what, 40?
0: 39? I think, I think so, so, yeah.
1: You know, I guess they like they say, when you can't catch up to that 95-mile-an-hour fastball anymore like you used to, that just means that as much as it looks like you're still swinging, you lost about a half a second. That's all it takes, you know? Absolutely. So, anyway, um, well, I don't think you called me up to talk about baseball, but we are having fun. Uh, <laughs> so, I, so unless you've been recording this for your podcast, and then you're going to say, next week, we'll talk to Alex about comics.
0: Well, I, you know what? Actually, usually I wait and start recording, but this time I actually started recording the minute I uh, made the call. So uh, it, so uh, after 20 minutes, we're going to get into to actual comic book talk. Oh,
1: well, there you go. Okay, so go for it.
0: <laughs> um, well, I want to go way back. So what was your first kind of, what, when did comics become part of your life, or when did artwork become part of your life?
1: Okay, well, let's see. I guess, well, as a little kid, I did what every other little kid did, was, uh, you know, you had coloring books and crayons, and you always liked to, you know, do some little drawings. I mean, even if I think you you grow up and you don't aspire to become an artist, it just seems that as a little kid you will be coloring and you will be trying whatever, whether you color inside the lines or not, you're going to be messing around with uh, crayons. But for me, I enjoyed it enough where... um, I guess it was, I was six years old, and at the time, we're still in the late 50s, we're in 1958, and we had a black and white television in New York City, and I did get to see uh, The Adventures of Superman on television in glorious, well, I won't say black and white, it's more like gray and white. (laughs) And um, I think we even had Flash Gordon episodes, TV episodes in those days, some of the serials and uh, the Max Fleischer cartoons would be on various stations. And, uh, but at any rate, I was enamored already with Superman. And I guess around 1958, it was Superman number 124 where Superman was on the cover in a sling and this Black Knight character was brandishing a sword, threatening Superman with it. And uh, that was the first comic book that my father ever brought home for me. Mm. Now, besides comics, I have to go one step back again. We always, my dad always would bring home two newspapers on Sunday. The, uh, the news, um, I think the Journal American, which was a huge tabloid, and then the Daily News. And in the Journal American, when you opened it up, you had this beautiful Hal Foster, Prince Valiant page on the front, and that was just beautifully drawn. And then on the inside, there was the Phantom and Flash Gordon, Mandrake the Magician, uh, Terry and the Pirates, uh, a a number of uh, other adventure strips, I guess. Um, And then in the Daily News, we had Dick Tracy, um, and I think we had... Steve Canyon. The Daily News was, for me, was more Dick Tracy and some of the gag cartoons. But the Journal American had all those adventure strips, which were which were really fun for me. So I mean, I was a huge fan of the Phantom and Flash Gordon even before I saw my first Superman comic. Uh, but when I got that comic book, and now it seemed rather than just being able to read six panels or three panels at one time, I got to re- look uh, look through, and actually at six I could already read. I got to read an entire story. So I read that comic book, and I guess maybe my eyes couldn't have gotten any wider. But uh, <laughs> I was just so thrilled to be able to see Superman in red, yellow, and and uh, blue, um, and to read his adventures rather than just wait once a week to see him on television. And so I immediately started to draw my own little comics. Um, of course, the, the drawing was very, very rudimentary, but still, and I had the crayons and I would color them in blue and red. And then I think as time went on, I remember one of the gifts that I would get for Christmas or a birthday every now and then would be these Venus Paradise coloring pencil sets. So, now, instead of crayons, I had coloring pencils. but uh, to my chagrin, my mother always made me uh, uh color those terrible pictures that were in there these vases and still lifes and uh, all kinds of stuff just because you couldn 't just buy those boxes with those pictures in it for the coloring pencils you had to get the, you had to actually finish those first, so I had to quick, do them as quickly as I could, but again. I stayed everything was inside the lines and i made sure i colored very lightly so i wouldn't use up my pencils (laughs) and uh then now i was using these pencils to color my comics and i think one of my best presents that i ever got for christmas was probably when i was about 10 and uh my mother and i were walking past some store whether it was a woolworth's or one of these type stores and in the window they actually sold a complete box set of, I think, 48 Venus Paradise colored pencils. So that was my biggest wish for Christmas that year was to get that box of colored pencils. And I did get them and I immediately started getting to work. And uh, (laughs) eventually I found that if I would outline my pencils in ink, whether it was ballpoint pen or whatever, I remember getting a dipping pen with an ink bottle and actually, was able to outline the pencils, and then when I colored them, all the all the lines would still shine through. Whereas when I go back to just coloring before I would ink, you're coloring pencils, and the pencils sometimes uh, you know would smudge a little bit. It just wasn't as sharp and as clean as, as obviously as if you inked So I was already aware of inking even when I was very young, um, and so I just basically uh, would. Draw my own little stories. um, I guess after school, when I would come home after homework was done, and I would just continue that even through high school. Um, And my artwork got uh, obviously better and more sophisticated looking. But so I would have to say that much of what I have is self-taught. But um, but I always had the notion that I would do artwork more or less on the side, or for my own pleasure, but I wanted to go to college to study medicine. So eventually, so I was math and science oriented in high school, uh, or secondary school I guess if you want to call it that, and I excelled in calculus and physics and all the sciences, biology, chemistry, and uh, just figured, okay, yeah, I'm gonna be a doctor, and I'll just keep doing artwork, take electives, just to keep my appreciation for the arts going. But I guess once I got into college and I did two and a half years of pre-med, I finally got hit by organic chemistry. And, uh, boy, organic chemistry was so difficult. Although I thought I was getting the right answers when I got uh, the tests back and they were marked wrong. And I think I got, that was the first time in my life I ever got a C. And I thought, this is ridiculous. And uh, somehow got disenchanted to... uh, pre-med, but I didn't know what to do, and, um, at the same time, through college, I was already playing in a rock band, um, just on weekends, and maybe one night during the week, so it would be, let's say, let's say a Wednesday night, and then Friday, Saturday, or Friday, Saturday, Sunday, so at least about three nights a week, uh, just, which actually paid my way through college, and, um, what happened was, uh, I decided since I had that particular source of income, um, I was going to leave school for a while. So I did. I left school for actually about a year and a half. And I, after, you know, having the fun, being in college and taking a hiatus and playing in discotheques at night and reaping all the rewards of playing 40 minutes on and you know, a half hour off and having friends come over and, uh, you know, free liquor at the bar and all that stuff after a year and a half. Not that I'm not a red-blooded American, that I enjoy that stuff, but I got kind of bored with it, thinking that I can't make this my career. And all my other, uh, you know, buddies were uh, in the band. They wanted to become professional musicians. But um, at the time, then I decided to go back to art school and I attended the School of Visual Arts in New York City, and um, my mentor there was Will Eisner, creator of the Spirit. Wow. And um, so now, considering that I did have college credits under my belt, um, I transferred whatever I could to the art school, which wasn't very much, because there were no sciences in the School of Visual Arts. So even though I think (laughs) I had about, I'm going to say, 65 college credits already amassed they only transferred 20. And out of those 20, what was uh, language, uh, English-type classes, that kind of stuff, Uh, maybe an art history class. So whenever I would go register, I would just always say, "Um, yeah, I'm a transfer student. I've had that already. so So here are the classes I want to take. So I took basically everything I wanted, illustration classes, painting classes, things like that. But there were some classes that you wanted to get into that were incredibly popular that you just couldn't get in there uh there was a illustrative painter named Gil stone who um was by nature an illustrator and you know he was very popular with book covers and uh interior illustrations for magazines etc and everybody wanted to learn from Gil stone but um i needed to take a painting class just to fill up that uh i guess the course load for the semester and so i took one that was just too much fine arts for me and i didn't uh Uh, I wasn't really focused on it. It just wasn't my cup of tea. Um, But at any rate, I just stayed at visual arts long enough for me to, I guess, get the most out of it. Primarily, you know, studying with Will Eisner. And um, after that, uh, after I got out of the school, I ended up uh, trying to get into the comic book companies. But this was 1976, and nobody was hiring at that point. At least, not me and um, so I decided I was going to put my own work together and I created a new comic strip uh, I put a little fanzine together and then sent out the fanzine to various comic book uh, shops and uh, I guess uh, let's say distributors and on the east coast at the time it was Phil Sooling and on the west coast it was Bud Plant and so I sent them copies of my work and it was actually Phil Sooling in um, not too far from where I lived in uh, Brooklyn. He was in, um, in Queens, I think, which was only about 40 minutes away. But he ended up ordering 500 copies of my magazine, which, of course, I said yes, but I had to go back to print because just on the initial print run, I only did 300. And I figured I was going to just try to sell them, sell enough of them to break even so I could do a second issue. And um, so now I think I had sold maybe about almost 100 on my own and I had 200 left, and I figured, well, I got to go up. I want to keep an extra 100 for myself, so I have to go get another 400 made up to fill. And of course, to save costs, I would fold it, staple it, you know, do the whole thing on my own. And then when I had 500 copies together, I called them up because I wasn't aware of media mail at the time and what it would cost to ship it. And I said, wow, this box is really heavy. Can I come over to your house and drop it off? And he said, sure. So I took the ride, and, um, it was the first time that I got into anybody's house that was two stories from the outside, and of course it was two stories from the inside. But when you first walked in, the living room was about twenty feet high, and there was a staircase off to the side that led you to the second story. But on that twenty, on all those twenty-foot walls, he had nothing but original artwork framed from all the uh, from all the comic book giants up to that day. And my at that day at the time when I went to see him was nineteen seventy-seven in uh i want to say early around this time it was probably around march or april of 1977. and so um he had prince valiant pages framed and he had a couple of will Eisner pages framed and lou fine and alex raymond and mac raboy and all these giants from the comic book industry uh, in the forties and fifties. And I guess in those days, if you seemed like if you would write to a publisher or go to a publishing house and ask for a piece of original artwork, they would just hand it to you because comic book art was considered really bottom of the barrel as far as the, uh, you know, any kind of, um, uh, you know, being worth anything in the art field considering that the pay scale was just so low, uh, there were a lot of comic book artists that were really not very good artists at all, but just because they could sort of draw something that was representational uh, of a human being and a car (laughs) and some buildings and situations, uh, you could become a comic book artist. And uh, again, some of these greats that I had mentioned that were hanging on his wall, that was, you know, as opposed to some of the comic books that had come out in the day where the artwork wasn't all that good and back as you know in the 40s I mean comics were all a dime but I mean there were so many different companies between uh, Timely slash Marvel and then you had DC and then you had Fawcett and then you had a couple of other publishing houses there would be a couple of hundred titles I think a month that would come out on the newsstands, and I guess they sold enough copies just to keep going Um, but at any rate he bought those 500 copies for me, and um, you know, he said he was gonna, you know, just yeah, take them around and see what happens. And I said, okay, well, can I call you every now and then just to see what's going on with it? And he said, yeah, no problem. But as it turned out, I think it was in uh, that must have been April because the following month he was running a comic book convention in New York City, and he was the first. I guess big uh, pioneer to run these big shows that would last a weekend in New York, and he would have all the uh, invite all the superstars of the day, like Gil Kane and Murphy Anderson and Carmine Infantino, Neil Adams, Frank Forzetta, Dick Giordano, all these guys would always be invited to these shows and um, so I remember going to his Easter show, uh, which was in uh, or a spring show, which was in may, and um, there he was, he had his big, you know, five or six tables set up, and smack in the middle there someplace was my little magazine, which was really eight and a half by 11 folded in half, so (laughs) it was relatively digest size and more cost effective than if I tried to publish an eight and a half by 11. Mm. Um, So I think comics at that time were selling for 35 cents for 20 pages of stuff, and I was charging 40 cents for my little fanzine. So even though it was a nickel more, uh, I still think I had uh, close to 20 pages in there anyway of uh, of art and story. So I didn't think I was trying to rip the public off by ordering my fan if they had the chance. <laughs> but at any rate, um, so I was there and I saw my magazine. I asked him how it was doing and he said, uh, yeah, there's, yeah, there seems to be some interest for it. Yeah, it's doing pretty well. I said, okay, great. And I just made my rounds throughout the show. <laughs> and um, I guess within about... I would say 20 minutes or a half an hour, um, over the public address system. I hear my name being called, um, to come back to fill Sootling's table. So I didn't know what was going on, but I went back and, uh, um, there was this gentleman, uh, relatively a short gentleman, uh, but he was obviously looked like he was in his, you know, uh, an older man, fifties or sixties. And, um, he was thumbing through my comic book. Now, he had on a white shirt, a tie, jacket, dressed well. And so I, Phil Suling, introduced me to him and it turns out he was Saul Harrison, the president of DC Comics at that time. Oh, wow. And Saul was looking through my magazine with a big smile and he asked me if I'd like to work for DC Comics. (laughs) And that's pretty much how I got in. Um, I mean, I never, there were, Friends of mine that were in college with me at SCA who were lucky enough to, you know, get, let's say, internships or assistantships with some of the big guys like Gil Kane, Great Morrow, Wally Wood, and learn from them. But I never had that benefit. I just basically did it on my own. And, um, uh, you know, I was considered to be one of Will Eisner's, I guess, better students because even though he had a three hour class once a week, um, the first hour would be for would be for, for him to teach and then the next two hours would be more or less a studio session where he would walk around to those people who needed help and uh, spend time with them and unfortunately as much as I still felt I needed a lot of help he would spend the least amount of time with me because I was so far along um, so much more than so many of his other students that I felt like I never really got that much of his time but I think, well, once or twice I had asked him if he could spend some time with me and he, he would invite me to his studio and give me about two or three hours and just go over, you know, a comic strip or something that I had created at the time and gave me so many great pointers. So, I mean, I did learn quite a bit from him. Uh, but as far as my own drawing ability, I would have to say, um, after having been made aware of my shortcomings and then, you know, going through, getting certain books, um, primarily... Figure Drawing for All It's Worth by Andrew Loomis. Um, that was, I'd have to say, my Bible, because I tried looking at uh, Bridgman's Anatomy books first, and gosh, they was they were just so hard to understand in terms of, you know, the drawings were kind of gray and grainy, et cetera, et cetera, but whatever. Um, it was just a lot easier and a lot clearer when you looked at um, uh, Andrew Loomis' stuff. But once I learned... What was going on in that book? Then it made looking at Bridgman a heck of a lot easier. Uh, But at any rate, for any of the fans that are interested, uh, uh, Andrew—although I consider Andrew Lewis's book my bible—it's also the bible of the esteemed Alex Ross. Hmm. So, uh, if anybody wants to pick that book up, uh, thinking, "Okay, well, you know, I'll use it," but if I say Alex Ross, then I go, "Well, heck." If Alex Ross uses it, then maybe I should use it, too. <laughs> you know? um, so I didn't know Alex Ross used it. He's, he's a lot younger than me. So it's not like I ever met him at a show and said, hey, listen, Alex, get this book and, you know, you'll be well on your way. Although I have to admit that when I do go to conventions and people come up to me and show me their portfolios, um, that's one of the things that I always recommend to them if they've got anatomical shortcomings, which... of them do. I mean, there's only been a handful of people, I'd say, over the 40 years that I've been in doing this that, uh, you know, came to me where I really felt like, wow, uh, there's nothing else I can really tell you about drawing anatomy. Let's just look at your storytelling. Hmm. Um, So Basically, if they've got, as I said, if they have some shortcomings, I always recommend that book, and I think it's still really uh, easily available nowadays. I think it's in print. Again, you can get it on Amazon, uh, or you could probably even download the page at some place. But um, at any rate, going back to my, sorry if I keep digressing, but going back to my experience with Saul Harrison, the president, yeah, he just told me at the time, uh, wow, he really liked what I was doing, um, you know, would love to have me work for them, but uh, pro- protocol dictated that I call up Vince Coletta, the art director at that time, and make an appointment to see him. But he will let him know, Saul would let him know that I'm coming. So nice. anyway, that was a Saturday. Monday, I made the phone call, got an appointment on Wednesday morning. Um, Vince Coletta looked at my work, said, hey, hey, kid, this is great. Um, let me get in, let me introduce you to Paul Levitz. Uh, Paul, uh, I guess he, uh, you know, looked at my work, too. And then within a short period of time, maybe within a half an hour or so, uh, Paul called me into his office, and they had a one-page house of mystery story for me to draw, just to more or less get my feet wet, working with a script from written by somebody else. Because, obviously, prior to that, all I ever did was write and draw my own stuff. That makes life very easy, because I can draw whatever I feel like writing off the top of my head. Uh, here I have to look at somebody else's words and see pictures and come up and follow their vision and uh, try to make it uh, try to make it work. so I turned that in and um, right after that uh, they gave me a seven page science fiction story to draw um, and then after that I got a five page little backup war story to draw and then after that, I got another two page Mystery story to draw. Uh, I think it was for Witching Hour, and um, that had a, that was an interesting story about that because it was basically a straightforward story about witch witchcraft and a trial. Um, but at the time, you know, if you're aware of Neil Adams's work. From the um, I guess late sixties, early 70s. I mean, Neil didn't necessarily follow convention when it came to laying out pages. Instead of having six-panel grids or nine-panel grids or eight-panel grids, whatever, he would uh, he, he would basically have triangular type shapes to his panels. But as long as you could tell a story and know what's going know what's going on, that uh, you know you could follow it. And so I did my two little two-page story. Um, in that particular fashion where, um, my, some of my borders were, let's say on a 45 degree angle to each other and some of the, um, I guess, particular characters would, the heads would break the borders and go into the panel above them, but nothing to distract where if it, if if a head would go into a panel above it, it's because the the previous panel was the previous panel, the next one would follow. So it's not like I'm leading you in the wrong place. And I made sure that my storytelling was intact. So anyway, I brought this in, and I really felt proud about how I had solved this particular situation with this two-page story. And the editor was Murray Boltenoff And Murray was very, very conservative, very conventional. And he looked at the artwork, and uh, he goes, I-, I don't know what's going on here, what, you know, these, pa- these panels, I mean, I can't follow what's going on. And I said, well, I'm just, uh, you know, Neil Adams is one of my big, I'm one of his big fans, and..." Uh, you know, he uses the same uh, border shapes, etc. at that times, and, you know, the storytelling works. It, you know, and it follows, he goes, I, I, I don't know, I'm, I have to go see Vince Collette about this. I don't like this at all. And I'm thinking, oh, wow. So, um, as he was leaving, uh, you know, I was in his office, he goes, wait outside. So I'm standing outside his office and I'm thinking, wow, I guess I really blew this one. And down the hall, maybe about, I'm gonna say <clears throat> 10, 15 yards down the hall, behind a closed door, I heard voices. One voice was basically raised, and the other one was sort of mellowed out. I'm <laughs> um, thinking, oh, boy, Murray's, Murray's chewing me a, a new ear here. Uh, I'm probably never going to work here again or something. And then he, he came out storming out of that office and walked past me in a huff and slammed the door. I'm thinking, oh, boy. And then Vince Coletta sticks his head out and he goes, hey, kid, come in here. So I'm thinking, oh, okay, fine, if I blew it, I blew it, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go cross down to Marvel. And that's another story. But in the meantime, Vinny calls me in and I said, Vinny, uh, look, I'm really sorry that I messed up the storytelling. He goes, ah, don't worry about him, the story looked great. Hey, how would you like to draw a Green Lantern? And I said, <laughs> what? I said, what happened to Mike Grell? He goes, ah, Grell is working on some other project, some Legion of Superheroes tabloid thing, and... uh there's two stories in his book and he's still doing a Green Arrow story, but there's a Green Lantern story in the front of the book that needs an artist. And, uh, uh, you know, I'd like to recommend you to Julie Schwartz to do this book. And I said, wow, that's great. So we went down to Julie Schwartz and I got introduced to him. And uh, he just looked at me, didn't really say hello. He just said, so what makes you think you can draw a Green Lantern? And before I could answer, <laughs> Vinny says, well, he'd be perfect because he's better than Gil Kane. (laughs) And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, what? I said, uh, no, I'm a big fan of Gil Kane's, but, uh, geez, that's, that's a lot of pressure to throw on me. And so Julie says, well, um, draw me a couple of samples on how you would draw the character. And, uh, I'll take a look at it. I said, okay. So if I'm not mistaken, I think that was a Tuesday and I went home. Um, I was, DC Comics was only maybe, uh, i say an hour away from my house, door to door. So I went home that afternoon and uh, got started working on some, just poses of Green Lantern using his ring you know, with creating some of his artifacts and flying and whatever, some action things and I uh, went back on Thursday with two pages worth of these poses showed it to Julie. He goes, okay, just, uh, just wait in the bullpen and I'll get back to you. I said, okay. So I went in the bullpen and I don't recall exactly who was in there at that time, but there was always somebody cool to talk to in the bullpen. But then about maybe 15 minutes later, he calls me back into his room, and he handed me my first Green Lantern story. Um, And it was for Green Lantern, Green Arrow number 100. And that Green Lantern story was reintroducing Airwave as a, I think, a cousin of Hal Jordan. And Airwave was still a teenager. I mean, younger than Peter Parker. I think he was only supposed to be about 14 And so, um, Green Arrow and the Black Canary weren't in that story at all, but it was Hal Jordan, uh, Green Lantern, and Airwave, and some villain that I had to design. When I look back at the design of this villain um, that Denny O'Neil created, um, and this was my first time working with Denny O'Neil also, which was unbelievable. uh, That made it very, very easy to uh, see pictures when you would just read his basic art directions. Um, but at any rate, I had to design this character. And, uh, when I think about, when I look back at that issue and I look at the character design, I cringe because it was so bad. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, but at any rate, um, uh, when I say working with Denny, where Neil was just such a pleasure, he would basically just give you one line of type as to what was happening in the panel, whereas because he had a 17-page story to deal with, whereas for some of those other shorter stories in the mystery category, or categories, Each one was a different writer, and each one had a different way of presenting a story. Uh, I mean, there would be, let's say, a uh, whereas on on a 17-page story by Denny O'Neill, you could have feasibly, I'd say on the average, five panels per page, and sometimes four, on these little short stories, because the writer wants to cram in all this story into five or seven pages, you'd have seven and eight-panel pages. And then there would be art directions like... uh, well, in the foreground, we have this happening. In the middle ground, we got that happening. In the background, the alien ship is landing. And I'm thinking, wow. I mean, I'm a neophyte guy, artist, working the scripts. And to have to deal with those kinds of challenges uh, made it very, very uh, tough sometimes. And, but I, would always, I always felt that I succeeded in doing what it was that the writer wanted. It's just you're more of a challenge than to try and figure it out. But, you know, these art directions were a lot simpler, so it really left it up to the artist then to just go ahead and use use our own devices to tell our story and make sure that there's a good panel flow from one to the next. Um, so at any rate, I turned in that story. Um, it was inked by Vince Coletta, who was the regular inker at the time, but I know Vince was prepped for time because he always took on any assignment that anybody would give to him, and he was a consummate professional in that... Uh, he would always get a job done on time, and many times the, audit, the editors would call on him to do uh, an inking job that might, uh, they, that somebody else might have, you know, a week or two weeks to do, and he'd end up doing it in two or three days. And you'd be hard-pressed to look at that, uh, that inking job um, in between the other inking jobs that he would do and be able to look at it and say, wow, this one looks terrible compared to the others. I mean, he did the same kind of work uh, for everything he did. I mean, he just didn't go to sleep, okay? Um. Uh able to work through the fatigue, get the job done. But at any rate, I guess because he was hard pressed for time, he was inking the heads, but then they had, he had his friend, Frank Chiacoya, ink all the bodies and the rest of it. <laughs> so Frank, I guess, had an assistant doing backgrounds, but Frank was doing the bodies, then he was doing the heads. So uh, Frank and, ha- and Frank happened to be one of my favorite inkers even growing up when he would ink anybody at Marvel, you know, whether it was Jack Kirby primarily or Don Heck or anybody that he touched. Uh, the ink, that the artwork just would shine. I mean, it was just that good. And um, so at any rate, after that, after I turned in that story. Uh, Julie Schwartz gave me another fill-in to do. I said, okay, it was a different writer. Um, and then when I turned that in, he had another two-part story for me to do. And I kept thinking, oh, two parts, that's great. I mean, that's that means I'm employed for two months instead of just one. <laughs> and um, then after I turned that in, uh, let's see, that was 102, 103. Yes, around that time, there was this, there was this event, quote-unquote, at DC Comics called the DC Comics Implosion. Now, we're looking at 19... 19- I think late uh, early 1978, where they used to have um, I think they used to have backup stories and whatever, it just seemed like comic books were not selling that well, and so they eliminated the backup stories, and uh, now comics were only going to be 17 pages instead of 22 or 23. They had to save money. And I remember I didn't know what that meant because a lot of some books got canceled, series and stories got canceled. And I remember getting a call from editor Jack C. Harris uh, one afternoon where he said that, uh, well, with DC implosion, uh, a lot of freelancers were let go, um, especially the newer ones. And when I heard that, I'm going, oh boy, this is it, my, my yellow slip swan song. Okay, and he said, well, we pretty much let go all of the new guys except for you. And I said, really? He goes, yeah. And he said, I'm taking over Green Lantern, Green Arrow from Julie Schwartz, and I want you to be my regular guy. And I said, wow. So now all of a sudden I was the regular guy on Green Lantern. So that kind of carried on for a while, and a couple of months, three months into that, all of a sudden Paul Levitz calls me into his office and says, hey, listen, um, we also would like to know if um, you'd like to draw the flash. And I said, instead of Green Lantern? He goes, No in addition to. I said, really? And he said, yeah, he said, Ross Andrew just came over and he's gonna edit The Flash and we think that it would be a good fit for you to work with him and, uh, you know, we well, you know, you're good, but, you know, not to say that you can't learn from a, you know, an old pro like Ross, who's got a lot of great ideas and stuff. And I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. So that was a, I mean, that was a huge undertaking because now I'm only in the comic book business for about a year and I'm drawing two major characters every month. And that's 34 pages plus, well, let's see, on Green Lantern at that time, I just started drawing my own covers. So 35 pages. Wow. Uh, I mean, that's a tall order for anybody. I wouldn't want to draw 35 pages in one month now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at any rate, after a while, it sort of caught up to me. And uh, they ended up uh, taking Green Lantern away from me um, giving it to Joe Staten, uh, but they were so happy with what I was doing with The Flash, they said of the two books, they'd want me to draw The Flash. And I said, yeah, but I really like the character Green Lantern better. They said, no, that's okay. We, we think you'll do better on The Flash. So I really didn't have any say in the matter, and I wasn't a prima donna to go, well, screw you. I'm leaving then because I want to draw Green Lantern. Uh, no, prof- no freelance professional in their right minds is going to do that, I don't think. Uh, But at any rate, so I stuck with Gross and uh, had a great time working on The Flash with him. Uh, But we only ended up doing seven issues because around maybe somewhere like five or six issues into that run, um, I was also doing advertising storyboards in addition to comics. Now, the thing that that they paid incredibly well, but they only did them sporadically because... Uh, there was nothing steady about it. And um, so when a job would come up where, let's say, I would make on one panel more than I would do drawing an entire page of comics. Wow. Okay? But there was so much competition for art in in New York City for these storyboard jobs that, uh, not saying that I couldn't have, I probably over the course of the year could have made as much money doing storyboards, if not more. But the thing is, is that You would just be sending out flyers and, you know, setting up interviews, trying to get your samples out to these agencies where, you know, unless your stuff was really top-notch, you know, it would basically be sitting on that, you know, uh, submissions pile. And if they needed you, maybe uh, you'd be sitting by the phone call and uh, hopefully merely two weeks might go by, but some guys would, two months would go by. And then they get a job and then a day later another call comes in and now you got two jobs and you can't afford to say no to either one because, hey, you don't know if they'll call you back. So working as an advertising artist was very, very um, um, taxing in terms of, uh, it was nerve wracking. And uh, in talking to even some of the storyboard advertising freelancers, they would say that, let's say at the time uh, they were making three times as much money Even four times as much money as I was making, but they were working twice as many hours. So, if let's say if I was working a 50 hour week, they were working a hundred hour week, seven days a week, almost 24 7, never say no to anything. And then, um, after a while, because of that particular lifestyle, you know, whether they were smoking too much or drinking way too much coffee and not getting enough sleep, um, you know, they'd end up with nervous breakdowns or heart attacks. So, ah, uh, that just really wasn't my cup of tea, so I just figured, fine, comics are steady. Doesn't pay as well, but I know the check is there every time I turn in a story, and every time I would turn in a story, I'd get another one to follow. I never, there was only one time in my 10 years at DC where I turned in a job, and I didn't have one to go home with. And I only had to wait a week for that next one to come in, but again, I was uncertain if there was something new coming in, so, I made some calls and I could have gotten them to work, I think for Red Circle Comics, which was Rich Buckler had become an art uh, director over there. But just as uh, I was waiting to hear from him, I got another script from DC. So um, I'm trying to remember when he did call, if I just said, look, I appreciate it, but you know, I got work again from DC and I'm just not fast enough to work on two books a month. It's just too much. Uh, DC kept me going. And um, I guess, as I said, 10 years. And towards the end of my uh, 10 years, for about maybe, uh, I'm going to say <sighs> from 82 to 86, I was working on Superman stuff, again, for Julie Schwartz. Uh, because what happened was, prior to that, uh, as I had mentioned to you about the advertising art, I had gotten this really big job to do a movie poster in full color that paid a lot of money but um i couldn't do the movie poster and continue doing comics at the same time because as a freelancer all of a sudden i got hit with jury duty and i don't know if you have jury duty here in the you know in, in canada where if you get a letter to serve on a jury you have to go uh, otherwise they could incarcerate you yeah well at least that's what at least we have that in the united states and uh so it's grand jury duty and um uh, I, you know, they're giving me all these, the letter was giving me all these sort of friendly threats. And I said to my wife, wow, I gotta do this and try to work on this at the same time. I said, there's no way in heck that can still work in comics. I don't want to give up this movie poster. So I went into Ross Andrews office. And I just said, listen, I can't work on the flash. And he said, why, what happened? And I told him that my dilemma, he goes, well, all right. He says, well, I'm really sorry to see you go. You know, you were really hitting your stride here. and I think, uh, you know, things are just going to get better and better. But, hey, good luck to you. And um, so I also had to basically then clear it with Joe Orlando, who was the, I guess, freelance uh, editor or art director at the time. And uh, he said, wow, too bad. We were just about in the process of giving you a raise. And raises in comics weren't that much. Uh, to you know, when I left the office and I'm thinking, okay, yeah, you were going to give me this much, but wow, if I get this movie poster and then some after that and then some, you know, you always have lofty goals, but it's basically kind of you can't really put all of your eggs into one basket, so to speak, when you're dealing as a freelance artist. And uh, but at the same time, though, I maybe the the prudent thing to do would have been to say, uh, Miss uh, Ross, listen, I'm doing this movie poster and this maybe you can get a fill-in for me for one month and I'll come back after that. Instead, I just basically quit. <laughs> uh, so then after this movie poster thing was done with the grand jury thing, um, all of a sudden, I I got no phone calls. And I'm thinking, wow, what's going on? So I had to go back to, um, you know, back to D.C. and uh, tried to get my flash assignment back, but that was already handed out to Don Heck and they weren't going to take it away from him. <laughs> and so... Um, I got uh, got to work with Julie Schwartz again in his Superman family books doing Jimmy Olsen and uh, Lois Lane type stories. Uh, and when I say that was still probably around nineteen late 79, early nineteen eighty. so I was doing those kinds of stories for about two years until I think it was 82 when uh, he had uh, a Superman story for me to draw for a, um, I guess it was Superman in and uh, the Global Guardians for DC Presents number 46. Um, Excuse me. Um, So it was kind of interesting, and in one way it was a team book, because um, Global Guardians, they were just these, you know, strange group of characters, uh, like Hercules at the time, and the the Green Llama, and uh, (laughs) uh, let's see, uh, Jack O'Lantern, and it had to deal with Easter Island. And it was just a really fun story to draw. It was almost reminiscent of the old Justice League of America comics, where in the opening chapter, um, the Justice League would get together because there's a some obviously a threat. And then chapter two would be a team-up, let's say Green Lantern and Aquaman. So they would team people up that normally don't get teamed up. And then the third chapter would be uh, Man, Martian Manhunter, Wonder Woman, and... Uh, you know, um, she's Green Arrow, or something like that. And they usually have about two, three, four, chapter four would be those characters, and then chapter five would be more or less the wrap-up. So that's pretty much how this Global Guardians book went. It just seemed that Superman was teamed up with a different hero for about three or four chapters, and then they wrapped it up at the back end. And it was a fun story to draw, and then it just seemed that after that, uh, Julie always had some Superman stuff for me to do, uh... I did primarily those DC Presents books. I don't exactly know how many I did, uh, but it was always Superman and some new team, like, uh, the Metal Men, or, I remember, Superman and the Atomic Knights, um, Superman the Commandy, Jack Kirby's character.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so I got it. was a lot of fun to work on these um, stories. And then eventually I got to do uh, a couple of Superman stories in the actual Superman title and in the Action Comics title. And um, so it was around 1985, late 85 though, 1985, uh, there was a luncheon that was called by the then president of uh, DC Comics, Jeanette Kahn, And uh, Dick Giordano, who was uh, the freelance coordinator, and uh, I think Joe Orlando was there too, if I'm not mistaken. And um, they took us out to lunch, and when I say us, everybody who was working on Superman, uh, the writers, Marty Pasco, Carrie Bates, um, those were two notables. Um, And then the artists, myself, Kurt Swan, Kurt Schaffenberger, Arv Novik uh, we were all invited I think some of those gentlemen did not attend the luncheon but at any rate the luncheon was basically I mean really nice place to eat and then after that uh, the announcement came that the sales on Superman were dwindling and since Superman is basically the flagship title for the company uh, they need to do something to address that issue and um, they're bringing in some new blood so they were bringing in John Byrne At the time, um, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Ordway, uh, they would basically uh, spearhead the resurgence of Superman. So I think as John Byrne was writing and drawing Superman, uh, I think it was in action comics. And then Marv Wolfman, Jerry Ordway were doing the flagship title. And maybe, um, well, I guess whatever other Superman titles were around were handled by some other people. But at any rate... So they were letting us know that uh, that that stuff was getting it was in the works, and uh, they would let us know when we would have our last Superman assignments. But not to worry, they would have other work for us. So we didn't. I didn't give it any any further thought, other than, oh well, I'll just keep doing this until it's over. So this was November, and I guess December, January '86. Uh, then I turned in my last Superman story in, in February of uh, early February of 1986. And um, I remember turning in and uh, took Xeroxes of my work, as I usually do. And Julie Schwartz said to me uh, that he had one story left as editor of Superman and he felt that he owed it to Kurt Swan um, because Kurt's just been such a longtime Superman artist for so many years. Uh, Respectfully, you know, he deserved to have that last story. And I said, oh, sure, no problem. Um, but he said, you know, just go down just go see the um freelance coordinator. Well, Dick was, the art director, I guess, and um there was a, uh there was somebody else who was a freelance coordinator, Pat Bestien. I was handling that and when I went to see her, she said, Oh, I'm sorry, I don't have anything for you right now but you know, sit tight, we'll get something for you as soon as we can. Um, um I guess if I had no other recourse, I'd have to go home and, and live with that. But um, as it turned out, um, my, plan, my plan B, if you want to call it that, was the fact that I had gone to secondary school with John Ramita Sr.'s sons. One of them was Victor Ramita, who was a year younger than me, so when I was a senior, he was a junior, and he had no comic book aspirations, but we were in the National Honor Society together, so <laughs> I knew who he was, and he knew that I knew of his dad. And then, uh, believe it or not, John Ramita Jr. Um, was, I'm trying to think, he was in the eighth grade at the time that I was a senior, so we are four, actually we shared the same birthday. We are four years apart. Um, I'm going to be 65 uh, in August, and without me mentioning numbers, because maybe he doesn't want the public to be aware, I'll let everybody else do the math. <laughs> 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 but at any rate, put it this way: if John and I stood side by side, just by the fact that I'm four years his senior, I look old enough to be his dad. Okay? <laughs> I mean, he goes—he works. He's been working out seven days a week for about the last maybe 40 years, okay? <laughs> he's in perfect, he's has about 2% body fat. He looks really young and in shape, and uh, I look like the old dad. <laughs> but at any rate, um, we're still friends, you know, we see each other at conventions every now and then and we, you know, have a great time. And I got to know, I got to meet uh, John Ramita Sr. when I was a senior when I was a senior in high school. I got to go over to their house. They lived the next town over from me. And at the time, we're looking with, I'm thinking in 1970, I graduated high school in 70, so this was early 1970. Um, And at the time that Jack Kirby had left Marvel to go to DC, John Romita Sr. had taken over the mantle of drawing the Fantastic Four for at least, I wanna say, one, two, three, like at least just about four or five issues, I think. And as it turned out, Um, when I got introduced to his dad. Now, mind you, this is 19, I'm gonna say 1970, so I think John was maybe probably about, not even four, he was 39 years old, which is kind of weird to think that when you're 17, and you meet somebody that's 39, you figure, wow, you know, the guy's like 22 years older than me. I mean, mm-hmm. he's mature, family man, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I mean, my son's going to be 35. So now it, it's just age is just relative, I guess. <laughs> as you get older, I'm thinking, wow, I met him when he was still almost a kid. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as it turned out, on his drawing tape, <clears throat> he had, he was working on, his first issue of the Fantastic Four. So I got to see his pencils of this one page with uh, the Fantastic Four and Submariner. This was from Fantastic Four number 103, his first issue. And then at the same time, he was also inking Amazing Spider Man over Gil Kane. So he had a Spider Man page on his drawing table and he had a fantastic four page that he was penciling on his drawing table so I'm looking you know with my jaw just hanging open <laughs> you know as a 17 year old kid meeting this icon already John Romita and actually seeing original artwork on this table is like amazing um, but at any rate he had some point you know he talked to me he says hey listen if you want to become a comic book artist it's, it's kind of an unrewarding field other than the fact that You know, you get to do what you like to do. You got to love to do it. He says you tell stories. Uh, The hours are long and crazy. The pay's not that great, but if you got it in your blood, it's in your blood. You know, you got to do what you got to do. So, at any rate, um, I just had a a casual relationship with him over the years. Once I got into DC, um, you know, I tried. You know, I mean, I tried Marvel and DC. Um, at one point, and they weren't hiring in 1976, but in 1977, um, I just happened to get into DC by chance, as I had explained earlier, and if that would have happened with, let's say, Jim Shooter looking through my comic and saying, hey, listen, how would you like to work for Marvel? At that time, or whoever the uh, editor-in-chief was of uh, Marvel, I don't even know if it was Jim, but if that would have happened to me through Marvel, I would have worked for Marvel first. Hmm. But at any rate, um, so I called him up when I had, um, you know, found out that I wasn't getting any more work from D.C., and he says, hey, yeah, come on, come on over. I had to take a I took a walk across town to Marvel. Well, it took about, was about maybe a 15-minute walk in New York City from D.C. to Marvel. And he said, uh, you know, if you've got some samples of your work that you can leave with me, because at that time he was the art director there. He said, you know, editors are coming in here on a daily basis looking for somebody to fill in on a book because our guys here are just late all the time. And he says, you could probably make a living just doing fill-ins. I said, yeah, fine, I'll come over. So I just took my last Superman job that I had done at the time. I think it was from Action Comics, uh, number 582. And um, it was a, a story entitled Rebirth, And um, it had Superman and Lara and Jor-El and Exploding Krypton Planet, I think, on the cover. But what was most notable for me was that it was inked by Murphy Anderson. And uh, we had worked on two Superman covers throughout the years, and I kept that one. And uh, another one that I had done, he kept. Uh, Because usually when it came down to covers, usually the penciler and inker would have that relationship where I would get one back from Art Returns, the Ink would take one from Art Returns. So it just happened that that was the first one we had done together and I asked if I could, obviously, as a pencil, I got that one anyway so I was really thrilled with that. And I still have that cover in my, at home. Uh, I'm sure I'll, I say I'll never part with it but I mean, if somebody through your podcast says, what? He's got that cover? I want to offer him, uh, you know, million dollars for it well i guess i'll i guess i would entertain that offer Uh, (laughs) hey listen i dream okay but at any rate um you know the thing is is that jerry seinfeld is a huge superman fan and if he hears his podcast and knows that i have that cover maybe he'll get in touch with me i have no idea but at any rate um i dropped off the uh pencil pages from that story at john's office and uh this was i think a Monday or a Tuesday of that particular week and by Thursday I got a call from Marvel from one of the editors that was editing Iron Man at the time and they needed to fill in on an Iron Man story. So, that's, that's what happened uh, that's how I ended up leaving DC and then going to Marvel and then I guess about three three weeks later when I guess the word was out then that I was working at uh, Marvel because all of a sudden they called me up and they said hey listen we got a great uh, uh, story set up here that we think you'd be perfect for and as it turned out it was uh, they were taking Jonah Hex and they were were turning him into a somehow western hero but in the apocalyptic future uh... of like twenty two thousand one hundred and fifty or something and i'm thinking Hex in the future what kind of a bogus story idea is that <laughs> And then, but at any rate i said uh... Ah, no, i'm working for marvel now i uh... you know i can't do two books a month um, i couldn't wait any longer you know being a family man etc., etc. i just had to get work right away and, uh, they said, well, listen, you know, we think it really would be really good for you. We really hope that you reconsider. I said, well, I'll have to let you know. And then, if I'm not mistaken, the writer of, the, of that particular series, I think, was Steve Gerber. Um, and he, co- he even called me up the following night and said, hey, Al, I'd really like to work with you on this. Uh, I think we could do some fun stuff. And I said, well, Steve, to be honest with you, I said, you know, I'm working for Marvel right now. I just, um, I'm in the process of finishing up this Iron Man story. They've got something else lined up for me already. Um, I'm not going to, you know, they've given me a big raise over what, Marvel, what I was making at DC. And I said, I can't just say no to a gift horse, you know. Um, when I got to Marvel and they asked me what my rate was, I told them, they said, wow, nobody at Marvel works for that rate. And they immediately gave me a huge raise. Oh, wow. Um, and I said, okay, fine. Um, so, uh, Marvel, no, for the 10 years that I worked for Marvel, Marvel treated me really well. Um, I had, uh, after I did the Iron Man, I ended up doing a uh, fill-in. Uh, I did some covers for them, one after another, at West Coast Avengers Annual Number 1 and Avengers Annual. Some of their, I guess Jim Shooter had created this uh, Marvel New Universe characters, which I think were ahead, ahead of its time because now some of those characters and the fact that some of them didn't necessarily wear costumes, um, that would have been probably, you know, he was the George Orwell of Marvel at that time because we're looking 30 years ago and it had never caught. And I think the sales on those books were dismal enough where I think that basically led to um, you know, his downfall at Marvel Comics um, through no fault of his own. I mean, he had a really good, viable idea it just that it was like I said ahead of its time, and uh, the bottom line is, if that sale, if that you know sales go down and things I guess tank, then uh, I guess the higher ups weren't really too happy with that. But at any rate, um, I got to work with Jim Shooter on a fill-in for his Star Brand book, and the editor had uh, he basically pre-warned me. He said, you know, Jim's really tough on artists, um, but uh, you know, I said, hey you know, how tough can it be? I said, when I worked in D.C., they warned me that it would be tough to work for Julie Schwartz. I said, I had no problems. I went in there, he gave me a script. uh, I turned it in. If he had a little minor change to make, when I say minor change, you know, change a little expression on this or fix a little that, you know, a a five-minute fix or less with a pencil and an eraser, no big deal. I said, he paid my check and I went home. I said, how hard can it be to work with Jim Shooter? Um, As it turned out, when I got to meet Jim, and uh, they, they put me, they brought me into his office and they said, he's not here, but you can wait in his office. And lo and behold, there was another gentleman standing in his office waiting for Jim. And it was the one and only time that I got to meet Steve Ditko. Oh,
0: wow. Uh, this is
1: 1986. And I just, uh, I introduced myself, uh, just, you know, I wasn't trying to play fanboy but I just said, Hey, I'm a big fan of your work. Uh, he goes, Oh, okay, thanks. And then Jim came in a few minutes later, Jim reintroduced me and, uh, so uh, Steve Ditko was handing in, I think, layouts for this Avengers annual, uh, West Coast Avengers annual, or Avengers annual that I had just done a cover for, and so Steve was doing the layouts. And uh, eventually, when the book was published, it was inked and finished by Klaus Janssen, which you know was an incredibly <laughs> was an incredible looking combination. Um, but at any rate. When, you know, Jim handed me his... uh, At Marvel, we worked differently than we did at DC. DC was all scripts. And at Marvel, they did the so-called Stan Lee plot style where you could either... uh, And that varied. That was um, was one of those things where somebody could give you a plot where, like, Stan Lee would get together with his artists and they would just have a discussion. Uh, You basically take your own notes. uh, Stan would... And then leave it up to the artist to block out the 20 pages and in the margins, write the notes. So if Stan would get together with an artist and say, okay, listen, uh, today, this time around, you know, Fantastic Four are gonna gonna fight Dr. Doom and, you know, gives them some kind of a, gave Jack Kirby some kind of a premise. Jack was a storyteller on his own right, where he would just say, okay, fine, I got it. Jack would just go and, you know, create this stuff off the top of his head, whether it was a three or a four issue story arc And uh, it ended up being magic, okay? Um, John Buscema could draw three pages a day. Jack Kirby could draw three or four pages a day because they could just kind of see these pictures right off the bat and whip this stuff out just coming in, or, you know, just off the top of their heads. Whereas, uh, you know, you'd have some other artists like, you know, Don Heck who could draw maybe, he could say he could do maybe a page and a half to two pages at best uh, John Rabita Senior as much as he would say, hey listen, I can um I can I'm as fast as the rest of these guys just in drawing, but he says it just takes me a little bit longer to do the story. So he says I uh spend a lot of time extra time putting these stories together. So for me it's a page or a page and a half a day uh and that's a long day for me just to, you know, get the story down and put all the notes in the margin for Stan. Now as time went on, you know, writers would, you know, get a little bit deeper into their plots. They'd give you, uh, Jerry Conway, for example, when I worked with him on Web of Spider-Man, uh, he would give you a page-by-page paragraph, um, and that would be his plot. Without giving you all the dialogue, he would give you dialogue hints um, so that you can deal with character expressions, depending upon what the situations were. In um, working with Howard Mackey, he would give me, let's say... Um, uh, you know, let's say uh, a number of paragraphs for pages two through four, two through five, and you go through that, now it's up to me to figure out, okay, uh, how many panels am I going to need to storytell this entire sequence over four pages? So there was a lot of creativity involved in, as, a, as an artist in being a, and freedom to be able to decide, should I tell this particular sequence in eight panels or can I do it in five? Uh, can I get a big giant shot in there of a character of Spider-Man swinging with, you know, four or five little storytelling panels, you know, framing the sequence? Because basically it's... uh, The page could be Spider-Man is swinging towards the uh, Billy Bugle building, and he's got a lot of thinking to do, but you just don't want to have one shot of him with, you know, a half a dozen balloons around his head. That gets to be boring, so you plan it out a little bit differently. Mm. Um... But at any rate, um, wow, I kind of lost my train of thought. (laughs) Um, uh, Let's see, where was I going before this uh, plot style DC thing that we were talking about, uh, John Romita? See, that's my my problem in doing interviews. I usually digress to a point where I forget what the original question and premise was. Not that you gave, not not that the only question that you have given me so far is, how did you get started in comics? That's true. And I've true. just been going to town for all this time, and I'm looking at the clock now, and it's almost 1.30, and I think we've been doing this for close to an hour and a half, or at least over an hour, and I'm going to have to start getting ready for my, uh, to get to go downstairs and get ready to go to the show. Uh, that being said, um, I would ask you if we could, shut it down at this particular point and maybe resume somewhere in the near future